Hi everybody, this is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And welcome back to episode 6 of Iroquois History and Legends. Uh, what are we titling this episode, Andrew? Won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> uh, so we're going to be talking about prehistory, right? And also uh, kind of a setup on where all the other nations are around the Iroquois Confederacy. Yep, we're going to, because to have context, you got to know who their friends, allies, neighbors, people that they were interacting with are. And enemies. And that's probably going to mostly be who they are. <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, let, let's answer some questions we have on our Facebook page. What do we got this week? Uh, we did have a question from Steve, and he says, you said that longhouses could be up to a football field in length. How did that work? Was the entire village in that one longhouse? Based on my limited knowledge of longhouses from visiting the Ganandagan historical site, it seems like super longhouses would be difficult to defend. That's a great question, Steve. And we are going to do, at some point, a whole episode, basically, on longhouses and how they were built. Uh, so I'll just try to answer that real quickly for you. Longhouses could get up to a football field long. They normally weren't that long, but some of the biggest ones were. And when they were that big, they normally would have more than two doors. Um, also, you have to remember, a lot of these villages at this time, they started to have palisade walls around them. So as far as defense, it wasn't just your longhouse that would give you defense. You would have dogs outside your camp, and you'd have your whole uh, little village surrounded by palisade walls. And, uh, you know, you have 100 people in there it'll still be pretty easy to defend. They actually wanted as few uh, holes and doors as possible because it's easier to defend that way. And the same thing with their walls. Their walls would have a very, very small entrance just so so one person could come through at a time. That's right. That way, you know, a few a few warriors could, could guard it against a whole in, invasion. Yeah, but keep an ear out. Um, we really want to get in the narrative, and we were, are going to break some things up, but we're going to do a whole episode on longhouses and palisade walls and how villages were set up and things like that, but it's definitely a whole different category in itself, and it's some interesting things and techniques. Okay, Caleb, so we probably want to start off, obviously... Columbus showed up one day, and he thought he reached India, and there were people here. And obviously they're not Indians, but how did they get here? There's a lot of different theories, and it's kind of still up for debate. Uh, so I guess what we'll do is we'll just kind of go through some of the main theories and, uh, and leave it for future people to discover the real truth. Yeah, and the reason we say that is you'd be amazed, but archaeologists get in these heated arguments with timelines and then, um, you know, the Aboriginal people have their theories as well. And so we're not going to play favorites. We're going to tell you what the different theories are, and you can figure it out because there's always conflicting things and new sites found and new conjecture on what could possibly happen. So when I was a kid in school, Caleb, here's what they told me. So let me know if this sounds familiar. Okay. A bunch of primitive people that were hunter-gatherers followed mammoths across the Bering Strait, and they came to America and settled the populations. That's what I also heard in school, but what my teachers failed to tell me is what the heck the Bering Strait is. <laughs> Seriously, I've always heard about this, but I didn't know what it was. It could have been a bridge <laughs> from Australia to South America, for all I knew. But you're right. I heard this theory. They came over from the Bering Strait. Uh, so basically, what the Bering Strait is, correct me if I'm wrong, but at one point, North America was connected to Asia yes. through Russia. 
because the water level, you know, we're talking 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 years ago was a lot lower because there were so many more glaciers, which was holding a lot of the Earth's water on the poles, you know, high above in these huge glaciers. And then when it melted, it raised the, the ocean level, which then disconnected the continents. Is yeah. that right? That's, that's a theory. Yes. <laughs> and so there are people that back it up with scientific data, um, but it's there. So that is the one theory that they came across. But the problem they run into is, okay, I was told that they walked down. But you got to remember, most of North America, including where we're talking about uh, the Finger Lakes area, was covered in a glacier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Finger Lakes were actually carved out of western New York by glaciers. Yes. So they're like, well, how did they traverse across glaciers? There's no mammoths to follow. There's no mammoths walking on glaciers. There's just no grass or anything to eat. Mm-hmm. So they come up with a theory, well, there was a there was a gap, a few hundred mile gap in upper Canada where they could migrate down through and it opened up at just the right time and then it closed up. So that's one theory. Uh, there is another theory which kind of has gained some more weight in recent years, and that's the uh, boat theory, Caleb. So you've heard of the Inuit, right? Mm-hmm. Eskimos, <clears throat> as some people call them in olden times. But the Inuit stretch all the way across you know, upper Canada, all the way over to Greenland. And some of the even Aleutian is another related people that's where the, the islands around um, Alaska are. The Aleutian peoples and the ethnic Siberian people on the Kamchatka Peninsula, they share very close genetic codes and even languages. And so they think, well, wait a second. These people had traditionally hunted seals and whales and things like that, and they built very watertight canoes. And they think that they actually probably more likely than walked across the land bridge was maybe even sailed and crisscrossed because the coastline of Alaska and British Columbia is actually a very temperate climate. Because of the rain that comes up there, they actually get very little snow. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite possible that they could have just sailed their little boats and established down the coastline. And the currents of the ocean. Exactly. Um, Also, think about it the same way like the Polynesians on the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, Those date back at least 1,500 years, and people were, were getting around those just by primitive canoes and you know following stars and currents now it's funny that you mentioned the polynesians caleb because although there's no scientific evidence for our north american native peoples there actually is some dna evidence now that they sampled some ethnic people in the brazil rainforest and they found that their dna about 30 percent of it matched up with aboriginal dna from australia now that throws a a wrench in everybody's thinking. So that means that some people that were aboriginals, you know, we talk about Easter Island being the furthest they came, but Easter Island to Chile is not that much further. Mm -hmm. And so some of them could have landed in South America and established either, and timelines are all stretched up, they could have either been there first and then other people migrated down in and they intermixed, or the opposite, they came there and found people that had already migrated down in the intermixed. So... There's no evidence that they made it up north, but there was definitely people in South America that had the Polynesian ancestry there too. So the long and short of it is people knew how to travel even back tens of thousands of years ago and how to get around. And so, again, 
There are dates here ranging from 40,000 to 10,000 to 6,000. And the answer is, we just don't know. And we're not going to try and make a guess because we're not anthropologists. Yeah, if, if even the professionals can't get it right, a couple of amateurs aren't even going to try. No. So we're just going to say they've been here a long time. Now, as for archaeological evidence for the area we're talking about, Caleb, western New York, um, these are, you know, primitive Stone Age people, so there's probably no archaeological evidence at all, right? Uh, well, <laughs> there's a lot of archaeological evidence, actually. Uh, some of it just dating back, my, so far back, it's just mind-boggling. Uh do we want to talk about the Lamoka site? I guess we can talk about it's so archaeologists have termed this the Lamoka culture because it was found main things were found near Lamoka Lake in New York. Uh, there's a plethora of stuff that they found, but they just keep finding stuff, and it's not surprising because if you've got people that have inhabited this place for thousands and thousands of years, of course things are just going to keep piling up. Um, so. Did you want to talk about some things they found in the Lamoka Well, sites? They, they found, you know, spearheads, and they found, they basically, they were able to find the original post holes so they can kind of see what their their whole village setup was like. And uh, we're talking, they believe this was like over 3,000 years ago. 3,000 B.C., actually. Oh, so, so 5,000 5, years ago. <laughs> yeah, you're right, B.C. I uh, didn't even think of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was a while ago. So so not only, did, like Caleb said, they found, you know, through the, the sonar readings into the ground and checking out the soil, they can see where the post holes were for their buildings, for their palisades. They found skeletons of people with, you know, projectile points embedded in their bones. And they can tell as time goes more advanced, the society changes and the projectile arrowheads will change form and get a little narrower or a little wider. Depending. Yeah, they start out as like a big, broad, like sharpened rock spear point. And then they start shrinking down and down and down until they become an arrowhead. And you can just see the technology change if you look up images of them, how they start finding ways to wrap it around the stick, you know, in such a way that it'll stay there. They end up having uh, war points and hunting points, and the war points actually break off inside someone and can't be pulled out like yeah they, they find these bones and they'll, they'll find people that weren't some were killed by the projectile points they can do the the bone autopsy and see but then some of them they'll find it in like an arm and the rest of the body's fine and the bone is healed around yes, the bone is healed around the projectile point so there's some very interesting stuff so it shows that people had been here a long time and obviously that warfare had been a big part of their life because more often than not they saw war wounds on the people and that's kind of when we started off with our first episode, The Peacemaker. Uh, that was the culture and continued to be the culture for a long time. Just random villages and tribes and clans fighting against each other. It was a free-for-all for revenge. And that pretty much seems to be accurate on how their life was. Now, a lot of people make the argument that there were very few people here. Uh, but I'd bring up the argument that if there are so few people here... What would the need for constantly warring with the other tribes around you be? If, if you only have 100 people per 1,000 mile, there would be no need to travel 1,000 mile and fight people. You could just live in peace and, and grow. 
so that kind of supports the theory that there were actually a lot more people here than originally thought. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, so obviously we don't have exact population counts of what the population of North America was in 5000 B.C., um, when we get closer to the time of the Europeans, which is going to be by the end of this episode, uh, we're going to start giving you some more e estimates on what people used to estimate and then what the people said, no, that can't be right, and now what we think again based on more evidence. Mm -hmm. So all the way going back around, we're going to catch back up to the time of the Peacemaker. Now, in the, the story that we told, we didn't put any dates in there, uh, on purpose, because we just wanted to keep it as a story. But this is a historical event, many people think. There are elements in there that people say, well, that's not true, that's not for us to judge or make up. But, you know, I'm pretty convinced that the core of the story is true, that the tribes united under somebody mm -hmm. that was a peacemaker. There is historical evidence that shows that, you know, we can see from the digs that there is a certain period of time where there was just constant war. Uh -huh. And then there's a time where it's very intermittent, mm -hmm. and it's usually in the outlying areas. So let's start to talk a bit about trying to date this story. Now, originally, uh, the, the standard model was, okay, the, the Confederation formed sometime shortly before Europeans arrived, maybe as late as the 1570s, you know, before the Dutch and the French made contact by the time they made contact, they were already united. There was no question about that. So they thought, okay, maybe it was a generation or two beforehand because obviously it couldn't have been anything long-standing because these savage people don't understand government and the whole system would have broken down and they would have gone back to it. Mm -hmm. So everyone just assumed that they must have united relatively you know, shortly before the white people came, maybe even because the white people came, we all just assume that they joined together to, you know, to strengthen themselves. And like we mentioned in other podcasts, they didn't have a written language, but they did have ways to keep track of time. To keep track of time. So why don't we talk about those a little bit? Yep. So um, first of all, I want to start off in the story. Now, we didn't exactly point to it in the story that we told Caleb. You mentioned that the sky grew dark. But in the story, it specifically mentions a solar eclipse. And the solar eclipse was the key to triggering, um, in some versions, where the Seneca decide to join the Confederation, and some where Taradaho uh, decides to turn his ways after seeing the eclipse. So people can point to that, okay, here's something that doesn't happen very often, and we can use almanacs and go back and look and find out when a solar eclipse happened in western New York. And so people going back, they, they figured out, okay, in 1451, on June 28th, there was one that passed right over western New York. You know, obviously we're talking about beforehand, before Europeans came. So this is probably, not only do you have to find an eclipse, you have to find a total eclipse. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we see eclipses all the time, but you have to talk about a total one that yeah. blocks out the sun. So a lot of people started thinking, okay, well maybe 1451 is more accurate. There is a problem with that, because as Caleb alluded to, they did have a way of keeping track of time. And the Onondaga Nation has a thing called the Taradaho stick. And it's, it's a stick that they had from back in the 1800s. I forget exactly which decade. But they put little knocks in the stick every time a new Taradaho was selected. Well, they had 
Now forgive me again, I can't remember exactly how many there were, but I want to say it was something like 147. If I'm wrong on that number, forgive me. And so that's a lot of people. Now, you don't think of it as like, okay, that's 147 times a lifetime of people. Remember, Tadadaho was an appointed position, served for his lifetime. So what a mathematician did is they averaged the average reign of kings and Supreme Court justices and popes, you know, people that are appointed to positions that are lifetime. And then they averaged it out and thought, okay, well, the average person served like whatever it was, 20 20 years. And so they multiplied that by all the knocks going back, and they came up with a closer date of around the 1100s. Which is interesting, because we also find that, that there was another solar eclipse in the 1100s. Yep, August 31st, 1142. So, those are the, now more likely to be the two main dates. So, you know, originally I thought, okay, well, the 1451 sounds more plausible. But after hearing about the, the knocks in the Tadadaho stick, 1142 sounds a lot more uh, realistic. And so that puts it, 1142, Caleb, That's we're talking about Vikings and um, Scottish Norse raiders. This is before the time of Braveheart. We're talking about how far back this, this is the time of the Crusades. Mm. This is a long time back. So we're looking at 600 years before there's even rumors of contact mm -hmm. with white people. So that makes it a lot more interesting. Yeah, and even before there's any rumors of democracy, democracy anywhere else in the world. I mean, you had the Venetian Republic. That's about the only other thing that's going on at the time. You know, Rome had fallen hundreds of years before. So yeah, makes it very interesting. Again, are we going to have definitive dates? No. But it makes it much more interesting when you start looking into, you know, legends and diving into the facts behind them. And it really makes for some interesting things. So now that we've set up about where we are in the narrative, so we're looking at 1142, and then Europeans don't come along for another 600 years. But there's still stuff going on because, like Caleb said, they're not alone. There's neighbors. Okay, so Andrew, let's talk about all the other nations around the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, to keep in mind, uh, now that we're talking about all these different people, when we talk about Iroquoian, we're actually going to be referring to many more nations than the five nations. Yeah, so listen to that ending suffix. Iroquoian is talking about the general people group as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's also a language family. Uh, so it's important to, to try and listen for that, and we'll try to point it out so mm -hmm. so nobody gets confused. But then you also had another larger uh, group of Algonquian-speaking people. Yes, and and who these people are, like the you know the Squanto, you hear about them and Pocahontas. Yeah, they were Algonquian-type people. That doesn't mean they were closely related, but the language family was similar. So we come. Our language is Indo-European, believe it or not, but English and Hindi are related. But if you look at another language like Hebrew or Arabic, it's a lot closer to us, but it's a totally different language family, not mm -hmm. related at all. Same way with Iroquoian and Algonquian languages. They were different, different families. But Iroquoian languages were all kind of had the same base. Mm -hmm. So the, the Iroquois, the five nations, are basically surrounded where they are in western New York. They're completely surrounded by all sorts of different nations of Native Americans. And because 
the Iroquois united in their confederacy, it basically gave them the ability to dominate against all the other nations because nobody else was willing or able to unite against them, which basically made them the scary, powerful nation uh, throughout the Northeast. Yeah, they were a terror. Um, as soon as uh, we're going to talk about Champlain soon, but Champlain heard about the Iroquois from the Hurons and Algonquian people, and they were just mortified. If they saw one of them in the woods, they would flee in terror because, like ants, mm -hmm. there's, that means there's more around. And like we said, the, even the name Iroquois that we use is, was originally a name given by those that were enemies of them. So when Champlain and the French came in, he kept hearing about the Iroquois, the Iroquois, the Iroquois. So then when he met the Haudenosaunee, uh, he said, oh, you must be the Iroquois, when, when in reality, you know, it, it's just, it was a derogative term to call these people that they were afraid and enemies of. Mm -hmm. So the Haudenosaunee, the five nations, they're generally living from the Genesee River, which is Rochester area, stretching all the way across Adirondacks, Mohawk Valley, uh, roughly to just before Albany. So the central part of New York is mainly where they are. So we have a map posted on our website. Oh, by the way, Caleb, we have a website now. Oh, we do? What's that at? Oh, just a little side. Uh, a little si plug. A little plug here on the side. <laughs> um, we now have an official domain, and it's longhousepodcast.com. If you remember that Haudenosaunee means people of the mm -hmm. longhouse, well, we're longhouse and we're a podcast. It's, it's pretty cool, too, because for each episode we post, there's like a, a whole comment thing. So you can actually comment on individual episodes and like do kind of a blog thing. It also gives us an ability to kind of, after we talk about all these things, we can post all our pictures and links to, to, to resources that we have for our episodes. Mm -hmm. So just a side note. So if you go to longhousepodcast.com, and you click on the little tab that says maps, there is a map that shows the five nations and it shows all the surrounding neighbors around them. Okay. So you can get a general idea if you're not familiar with East Coast geography. So let's talk about those surrounding nations. Okay, so I guess we'll start in the north because we'll go around. So in the north we have the Huron. It's a great name. Uh, for those of you in the northeast or anybody who knows your geography, you'll notice that one of the Great Lakes is Lake Huron. Yes. So the Huron are an Iroquoian people as well. And um, the Huron is interesting because you look at Lake Huron and it's all the way over in the west. Like, But when Champlain meets them, they're living up by Quebec and Montreal and the St. Lawrence Valley. Well, the reason is they ended up going west because the Iroquois were driving them there. And so the lake is named after where they ended up. But when the narrative starts, think of them as living along the northern coast of Lake Ontario, up the St. Lawrence River, towards modern-day Quebec and Montreal. Now, also up with them were different Algonquian tribes, uh, different kinds of mixed-up ones, and I'm not going to bother to name them all, but there were Algonquian tribes mixed up there, and generally the Hurons and the Algonquians got along. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to think of, especially because the Huron are... Uh, Iroquoian language speaking family but yet they're enemies with the five nations and then you have the uh, the Algonquians who speak a completely different language but throughout history we see a lot of times uh, Champlain even notes when he's vi visiting the Huron that there's a group of Algonquians that are coming and spending the winter with the Huron there so that they can hunt together or something like that. Yeah. So again they 
At the same time, they were not as united as the five nations. And just because you have the Huron, the Huron were broken up into smaller nations too. And there was a Huron Confederacy, but it was not bound as tightly like the Iroquois Confederacy was. It was like, okay, we're here. But they did fight with each other, and then they'd make up, and then they may... Uh, but they really were not a unified people like the Iroquois were. They had a council meeting, but again, it wasn't anything as solid like an Iroquois council meeting. So then if we're going northeast, we have the Algonquians, and then we also have a people called the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Now, this is another Iroquoian people who uh, we're going to run into when we start talking about Jacques Cartier, and they are actually the first Iroquois that make contact with the French. doesn't go so well for them. But there are Iroquoian people living up there, too. Then if you dip down on the map, we mentioned that near Albany in the Hudson River Valley, there's a people called the Mohicans. Have you ever heard of the Mohicans, Caleb? I've heard of the last of the Mohicans. Yes. It's like the most famous American novel there is. It, it's like known as the Great American Novel and a pretty good movie, too. Mm -hmm. um, FYI, the Mohicans are still around. They are. Thankfully, yes. they, they did not die out as portrayed at the end of the movie. Now, you notice in the movie it talks about the Mohicans and the Iroquois and the Hurons. Mm -hmm. The Hurons are the villains in the, in the movie. Um, but the Mohicans, at the time of European contact, lived in that Hudson Valley River range. Eventually, they were pushed out also by the Mohawks. Mm -hmm. And um, they were, through disease and conquest, they were whittled down. But there are still a, a nation of... Mohicans or Mohicans, there's different ways to pronounce it, but they're still around today. Then if you go south down, there's a river called the Delaware River. Have you heard of that, Caleb? I have. Uh, I've got my state quarter with the Delaware on it. Uh, but the Delaware River is actually named after the people group that were living there when people first started coming over, the Delaware Indians. Well, their name was not the Delaware. They were the Lenape. They got their name the Delaware by a person that came over named Lord Delaware. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's... Delaware, uh, his, it was a nickname. His name literally meant the Lord of War. Lower, Lower. Mm. And so he was one of the first people to colonize down in Delaware, Delaware River, New Jersey area. And so they put had their name associated with him. And so they were called the Delaware, but they were also known... Forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it was the Lunepe people. So they're down south. Then if you move straight south, we have, you've heard of the Susquehanna River? Mm -hmm. Well, we have the Susquehannock people. And these people were an Iroquoian people. Uh, the Delaware were an Algonquian speaking, but the Susquehannock are another Iroquoian people. So they lived in the Susquehanna River Valley. So think of, you've got Pennsylvania. You've got the, um, the eastern part of Pennsylvania, that river system there. And then... If we're swinging back over, we run into the Erie. We have a lake called Lake Erie. What about Tuscarora? Did we skip over them? Oh, okay. I guess we could talk about the Tuscarora. Well, it might as well at least mention them since they're going to be coming into the story. Yeah, they're pretty important. But uh, down in uh, South Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina? North Carolina. Well, we can actually just say the Carolinas because at, at the time... At the time, <laughs> yes. All right. So in the Carolinas uh, were the people of Tuscarora. At the time, working as their own sovereign nation, 
uh, once we get further into our narrative in the 1700s, they become adopted and join into the five nations, becoming the six nations. Yes. So keep an eye on them. They're going to be important down the road. Yep. And we're going to talk a lot about them. There's a lot of information on them, but um, in the 1600s there isn't. But once we get to 1700, they become very prominent. And when we come to the Revolutionary War, they're going to be very important. So we've got those as an Iroquoian people. And then if you swing over the Appalachian Mountains, we've got the Cherokee people, the Cherokee Nation, the Cherokee Tribe, Mm -hmm. to play off the song. But the (laughs) Cherokee are, even today, they're one of the largest nations. And so they are, you know, a lot of people have uh, Cherokee ancestry. But Cherokee were another Iroquoian people. Um, They've done linguistic studies, and they think that the Cherokee migrated from western New York probably around 1300 B.C. So uh, I didn't read anything on when the Tuscarora migrated down, but it was probably around that same time. So they've been living in this area a long time, so the languages have separated quite a bit. But Cherokee is an Iroquoian language. Now to get to the Erie. <laughs> so we have Lake Erie. You, you've got Lake Ontario in the in the, it's the easternmost Great Lake, and then you've got this tiny, it's the smallest of the Great Lakes. <laughs> this tiny Great Lake. Yeah, it's, it's still huge, <laughs> but it's the smallest one. It's Lake Erie. Now, the Erie people, um, they were also known as the Cat. That's what the French called them, the Cat people. And that's because um, they were known as, in their language, the long-tailed people. And they think that it was actually, they thought of themselves as the raccoon people. And French just said, oh, raccoon kind of looks like a cat. Yeah. And so they called them the cat people. Because the raccoon is uh, a native animal to North America. Yes. So it's quite possible that they just didn't have a word for these animals, and they just called them a, a tree cat or something like that. Yep. So um, the Erie were known as the cat people. So if you read old books, you hear about the cat people. They don't usually call them that anymore. Now they call them the Erie. And then swinging back around to the northeast, this is stretching from uh, modern Buffalo Across Niagara Falls into the southern part of Ontario, Canada, we had the Neutrals. The Neutrals. They were friends to everybody, right, Andrew? They tried to be, and it was their downfall. The Neutrals um, are totally gone. There's none left. They were assimilated by um, the Seneca, and we're going to talk about that. But they, there's none left. There's no neutral nation there might be some sort of moral to learn in this. <laughs> we'll not get into it. But pretty much the neutrals tried to be neutral against the wars between the Hurons and the Five Nations. They tried to stay out of it. They just wanted to live in peace. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work out for them. But setting up the board, that's where we're at. Now, it's an important thing for those of you that are looking at the map. You'll notice that the French settlers coming in uh, to Quebec and these, you know, the far northeast, you have the Algonquins and the Huron who are enemies with the Iroquois. And then if you go south, you know, New York City, Pennsylvania, where, where the English are settling, all of a sudden you're setting up this board where you have the English who don't get along with the French, so the English naturally are going to unite with the Iroquois, and the French are going to unite with the Huron and the Algonquian, and this is just going to create a huge mess. And then you've got the Dutch and even the Swedish that we're going to throw in the mix, setting up small short-term colonies, and they're going to be dishing out guns. And yes, the whole 
table, the status quo, is going to get upturned. So coming up, we're going to talk about diplomacy and wars and disease and all kinds of fun, horrible stuff. Yeah, this is this is where the North America is going to change forever, and we're going to start to see. Uh, the good thing is that we have a lot more documentation on what's coming up. The bad news is a lot of it is one-sided because, like I said, at the time, uh, there, were, there weren't as many Native Americans that were writing. So we do have a lot of information, but a lot of it is from perspective of early settlers and explorers. Yeah. And like we said, Champlain's coming, and Champlain's going to cozy up to the Algonquins and the Huron. And what do you think the Huron are going to tell them about the Iroquois? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, also, we're, we're going to be able to see a lot of the bad that comes but we're also going to see some good intentions too uh not everyone that came over was looking to to kill all the natives and uh and take their land there were uh we're going to get into the jesuits who were the the black robes as the huron called them mm-hmm. uh who were missionaries from France that were coming to spread the gospel Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, this so, yeah, not everybody that came over was bad. That being said, the, the proverb says that hell is paved way with the best of intentions. Yes. And as good of intentions that everybody had, in the end, it's still going to lead to an apocalyptic scale of destruction. Um, it, there's just no other way to say it their society is going to be decimated. Decimated isn't even appropriate. Where decimated comes from when the Romans would come through and kill one in ten people. We're talking about the opposite, where 90 out of 100 people may die. So join us next week, everybody, when uh, all hell is going to break loose. And we're titling this next episode The Dawn of Doomsday. See you next week, everybody.